Welcome back to From Scratch, a podcast that explores the world of STEM and startups. Today's episode will be, will be, will be a live recording in collaboration with Dublin High School's Girls Who Code Club. Today, we will be joined by Camille Bernard-Chaban, who is a materials physicist at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. After receiving her BS in nanoengineering and mathematics applied science at the University of uh, California, San Diego, she decided to take her background in electronic structure calculations and add atomic vibrations. Ms. Bernal Chaban received her PhD in material science from the California Institute of Technology under Dr. Brent Fultz, where her work combined first principle enharmonic calculations and inelastic neutron scattering to investigate vibrational contributions to the high temperature thermodynamics of materials. Recently, she joined Dr. Peter Amamont's group as a distinguished Granger postdoc. Here, she hopes to use X-ray and neutron scattering to investigate hidden orders in materials under extreme conditions. Outside of research, she's a volunteer for local STEM outreach and instructs a research preparation program, where she focuses on making science accessible. So, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, So, I'll start off with, like, the go-to question. So um, you're in materials engineering. What exactly is materials engineering? So materials engineering can be a lot of different things depending on what you want to do. And I think that's one of the really fun things about it. So I myself am more of a materials physicist. So I look at the physics. So the fundamental, why does it happen? using equations from physics. I know a lot of other people who are using techniques in nanoengineering, which is a fancy term for engineering at a very small scale. So I believe it's 10 to the negative nine. So kind of that order of magnitude, definitely can't see it with the naked eye. And they are actually building up nanostructures so that they can build stronger materials. Uh, There's also been some pretty neat stuff recently in terms of uh, 3D printing, and this kind of crosses over into some more interdisciplinary things, including bioengineering. So I would say that materials engineering is kind of what you make it, but it all comes back to wanting to know about materials and how they interact with their relative environment. That's really interesting. So like materials engineering really like plays a part in every like engineering field, right? Yes. Uh, So back in undergrad, there was actually a joke that was pretty well known that material science was about a mile wide in knowledge and about a foot deep uh, because there was so much knowledge that you could get and you could really only go a foot deep in every different topic or subtopic that you could do at an undergraduate level. That's really nice. Um, what really like inspired you to go go into the world of like materials engineering? Oh, I think I had one of those atypical paths. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before this session, and I mentioned that I almost went into bioengineering at uh, UCSD, which is again where I did my undergraduate education, and I really wanted to be a bioengineer. I thought it was really neat. I had some experience from I believe probably a similar program to what you're in right now and that we had um, a biotechnology institute at my high school. And I really enjoyed 
the biology aspect of it, doing assays, kind of separating and splicing DNA. And so I was just like, oh, bioengineering sounds fun. And then there was a session on the very first day of like the welcome to this field. And they held colors of vials and they were colors of the rainbow. And they said, guess what the difference between the materials of this is? And nobody got the answer. And that was because the answer was they were all the same material, just all different sizes. So they mm-hmm. had some type of confinement that basically made them emit different colors of light. And I just thought that was fascinating that you could have that effect on something just by changing the size. So I ended up kind of switching into nanoengineering. And then a long while later, I found mathematics and physics and kind of just fell in love all over again and then went with that. Yeah, that's really, well, that's really like inspirational. I would say you just went with the flow of things and didn't like plan everything out. I feel like that's something we as high schoolers really like try to do, which is plan every step of our life out um, just to like succeed. So I, that's really interesting. Um, so I want to ask, like, what is a typical like day in the life um, for you? Um, so this recently changed. So I will actually describe kind of what my life looked like at Caltech and kind of what it looks like now. Uh, so I was what I would consider a mostly computational material scientist at Caltech. So a lot of my day-to-day work was either running something called ab initio calculations, uh, which you mentioned in the intro. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what that is, because I sure as heck didn't when I was an undergrad, it is a method of using very fundamental physics equations and the true quantum mechanics of it. Um, Don't worry if you don't understand quantum mechanics. I don't know if anybody truly does. And it uses the basis of those equations to actually determine how a material will heat up, will how it thermally expand, Um, How does magnetism work in it? Tries to answer all of those questions. So what I focused on was running these simulations on a supercomputer. And so my day-to-day alternated between running these simulations, uh, kind of paper writing, and also talking with colleagues about new ideas, which I think is a really underestimated form of generating new ideas and maybe different directions that you hadn't thought of before. And then the other side of that was I would analyze experimental data from national user facilities. So again, a lot of that was done on my computer and there are some processing methods that were available from national labs that let us kind of make this process a little bit easier, but still did take time. And then very recently, I moved to UIUC where I am very much the only person that I 
know in the group that knows density functional theory, which is that computational method. And I am learning so much about a different field of physics and just so much about how to actually run an in-lab experiment, <laughs> uh, which I really hadn't had the opportunity before just because of the nature of my previous work. Uh, so I'll keep you updated on that, but I think it's going well. Oh, yeah. It's, is it, was it like a very big, big change? I'd say like going from like studying and like getting your PhD to like uh, the real work, not workforce technically, but like lab work and such. Was it like a very big change or were you like eased into it? So I think it it was and wasn't a big change. It was in that I moved from California to Illinois and I did jump fields a little bit. So my PhD is in material science, but I joined a physics lab, which they are very much related, but there are nuances and just parts of physics that I haven't really been exposed to before. And I'm very excited about this. I'm very excited to learn everything. I think the science in this new group is amazing, but it also is a lot to learn. So it can be a lot to take in. Yeah, that's, well, it seems like for me, I, I haven't like even thought that far ahead. So I can't really imagine what it is to go from like studying every day to like actually being in the workforce, even though that's what we're actually being trained to do. So um, so I was like really wondering what why did you pursue like a PhD? Like is there I know like the term has been thrown out around a lot, but um I don't think many high schoolers know really what a PhD, like what you can do with a PhD, why you get a PhD stuff like that. Oh, I'm not sure if they want to talk to me. <laughs> so again, uh, my story is not traditional. Uh, I actually thought I was done with academia after undergrad. I was fully planning on going in the workforce. I just wanted a break. So I actually took a break from science and I became a kayaking guide. So an ocean kayaking guide, and it's just like, oh, this will be a fun opportunity and I can job search for industry. And in the meantime, um, I was still doing a little bit of research in my undergraduate lab. So uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, you can absolutely do research as an undergrad and I 100% recommend the experience. And uh, my then advisor was just like, hey, you should probably apply for grad school. And uh, both of my parents are not academics. I really didn't know what it involved at the time either. So I started asking around and I ended up applying and I got into a really great school and I decided, hey, I should probably go. That's like, wait, can you expand more on? Did you say you were a kayaking like tour guide? Yes, I did. Um, 
So what I did is we did ocean kayaking. So there was a protected bay. Uh, if any of you are familiar with Hearst Castle, uh, there is a little town near Hearst Castle in California and it's called San Simeon and there was a kayaking rental place there that we would bring people out on kayak guides and we'd show them around their bay, point out local and native wildlife and invasive species and how to protect the wildlife and how to respect it. Uh, I think my favorite thing was when we saw nudibranchs, which for those of you who aren't sure what nudibranchs are, they're really colorful sea slugs and they just look fascinating. Uh, but sometimes you'd actually get to see those in person. Uh, we did have one person lose their wedding ring in a cave once and I had to go down and retrieve it. So. I think that was probably the most dramatic it ever got. Usually the people were just really happy to be out on the water. It seems like a quite a journey going from undergrad to a kayaking tour guide. Um, so speaking of undergrad, so like we're high schoolers here. I think all, all the questions are probably going to get in the form are going to be college related. Um, so what was like the, the peaks of like your undergrad um did you like you mentioned you did like undergrad research um typically like what should we expect going into the stem field um as an undergrad so i do think this will vary on the school and the culture of the school um i assume that most people here kind of just want to know the kind of stem aspect of the culture and I won't lie to you, I did have a lot of very late nights doing homework, but there were also times where doing that in groups really did forge friendships for life. So I have an active Dungeons and Dragons campaign that was started in undergrad and it is still going today. So, um, and we're all across the United States now, so now we do it virtually, <laughs> but that was, that was really fun. But yeah, so there will be some late nights, um, I can't really get around that, but I think one of the things that really kept me going during it was being surrounded by other people who were equally as enthusiastic about what we were learning. And I think that if we were all miserable, we all would have just been miserable together, but we found ways to enjoy it. Yeah, that's, it's really like, you seem like a very, your journey has been very like go with the flow vibes. Let's say very different from what we're trained to do in high school right now. So that's, that's nice. Um, so since this is like the girls who code, collaboration I was wondering um has being like a woman in the STEM field really like hindered you from opportunities or has it become a barrier or were you able to like overcome that and um learn things I would say I think it depends 
a lot on, again, who you surround yourself with. Now, there are some fields where I would still be very wary going into. Um, so I was very fortunate in that the materials science cohort that I was part of for my PhD was half and half male-female. And it was actually the first time that had ever happened. But in undergrad, I definitely was probably one of three females in a lot of my classes. Uh, there were times where I was the only female. And I think there were just some things about, and I don't want to say this is like a general teaching style thing, but I feel like a lot of it was mostly written towards kind of how males typically learn. And I don't know how to give a concrete example of this. This is the ongoing discussion that I've had with one of my colleagues and that usually male females typically visualize things differently or think about different aspects of things. Just generally, this could be how they're socialized. Um, there are many different reasons for this. And I think in that aspect, theory is typically a little bit harder. One of the hardest classes that I'm still very happy I passed in undergrad was something called measure theory, which is mathematical theory that was, I think, quite frankly, way beyond my intellectual skills to learn at the time. Um, I don't know if I could still learn it to this day. <laughs> but it taught me a lot about kind of what what is worth it to, it to pursue and what do I need to say, hey, this just is not my strong skill set right now and I might need to revisit this later. Mm -hmm. um, but coming back to the do I see discrimination? Yes, I do. Um, those were the more subtle things. I have also seen it openly. Uh, I'm not going to give any examples or any names or anything like that, but I definitely have seen it. Um, and I don't know if anybody has a good solution. I mm. truly think that the best one that we have come up with so far is just getting more younger females, um, non-binary people into these fields and just giving representation to that because that really does make a world of difference. Yeah, I think one of our things um, in our school is that we do have like an engineering academy where they do try to like make the cohorts very like even and try to include everyone. But I've that's one of the reasons that I actually started this podcast was to introduce engineering to everyone um, and just, I don't know, broadcast it is, I think for a lot of high schoolers, you go into high school and you think of engineering and you think of CS and like electrical or like in, uh, industrial and you don't really know like the different aspects. Like I personally didn't know about materials engineering or like nanotechnology until like I think 
I started college apps and I started college up pretty early. So it was like my middle of junior year, but I personally did not know. And which is why it's, I'm glad to have you out today to, to teach, well, teach us more and tell us more about what life is like outside of high school. So thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, I'm again, really happy to be here. Um, I'm also a very awkward human. So just ignore me if I have weird pauses in between. Um, this is what I get for being a physicist. Uh, but I think one of the things that, again, just in addition to getting representation is scientific communication. Um, one of the things uh, is people just aren't aware of what's out there and how do we get that out? So the research preparation program that you are a part of, I'm actually now working on getting something together that is similar at UIUC just to bring younger students in and so they know research exists and they know these different fields exist. Um, as I said earlier, I didn't even really know what grad school was until maybe my final year of undergrad. So the fact that you know what a PhD is kind of, and that you know what's an option for you down the road if you choose to take it is already a success for me because I didn't have that when I was in high school. Oh, so we are growing <laughs> little by little. Yes. So uh, I was wondering like how, big of an impact was like education into where you are now like do you think that had you started like learning about the field you're in right now um and more in high school do you think you would have been further along in your journey or would you have like do you think that there is ever a right time to start learning um about new topics so I like this question a lot because I purposely chose a field for my postdoc. So what I'm doing after my PhD, that was different and that would challenge myself to learn about a different field. And I do think taking certain other classes in undergrad that were more true physics-based versus maybe math-based or material science-based would have helped me be a little bit further along. But at this point in my education, I essentially have a degree telling people that I can learn new things. That is kind of what a PhD is, is proven to somebody that you can learn new things and start asking critical questions about how your field operates. Mm -hmm. So I think at this point in my career, it doesn't matter as much what my background is. Um, obviously, I still have to be productive in other ways. So now there's a new metric, it's called publishing papers, which is a whole thing we can discuss later if you'd like. But I don't think now the level of education is super important or what I learned. That being said, I did not have access to any CS classes when I was your age. I had no idea how to code. 
I didn't even know what a terminal on a computer was. <laughs> and I learned all of that in maybe, I think my junior year of undergrad. So yes, that would have definitely made life a little bit easier. But it was kind of, I don't know. I, I think I'm one of those truly interesting people. I don't know what the right word for this is, but I like to challenge myself to learn new things and I truly enjoy the science behind a lot of it. So coding was the skill I had to pick up to understand the science. And I was absolutely going to learn that because then it gave me access to the science. So the childlike curiosity for me with respect to science has just never gone away. Um, and I think that is probably one of my biggest advantages is that I keep wanting to learn and figure things out. Yeah, that's, I feel like your journey is very inspirational. It's not. I feel like it's chaotic. <laughs> But I think that's how life is. It's chaotic. And honestly, I wish schools would start teaching that more because right now we're taught that we have to decide what we're going to do and it's no going back after that. But from, I think not just you, but a lot of the other people I've interviewed have also said the same thing about how it's like life after high school is like, it's not the end of the world. It's not set in stone. So really, I love that piece of information. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody really knows what they want to do. They have options with what they could see themselves doing and they pick one of those. Um, so uh, I'm actually gonna ask a question that from our live audience here. So one person had asked um, if you ever felt like you went off the rail or deviated from your future plans. Did you ever like have a set plan or were you like you mentioned, you were more of a go-with-the-flow type of person. So, again, coming back to the, I don't think most people, well, again, this might just be me, but I didn't have a set plan with what I absolutely had to do. So I knew that I wanted to do science. I didn't really have a set role that I wanted to fill. So I kind of burnt myself out through undergrad, took a break from science and said, okay, I'll revisit this when I am mentally capable of handling this type of workload again. And I do think that was a good decision. Like I have no regrets about taking that gap year off and just kind of disappearing for a bit. And I think in a way it did help me sit back and figure out, okay, with my skill set, does it make more sense to go into grad school? Does it make more sense to try to pursue an industry position from here? And in my case, grad school worked out well. I would have probably been some sort of a research scientist or engineer at a company high not. So I, I think I always saw myself in a scientist position, but I didn't have something that was 
so clearly define that I wanted to do. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very, I feel like we're taught that it's not common for you not to know what to do, but really it's like it's everyone's in the same boat of not knowing. So it really brings a lot of comfort, especially to me as I'm applying to college and I don't really know exactly what I want to do once I get in. So, yeah. Um, so another question someone had asked was this was this one is like an advice question. Um, someone had said that, uh, what do you want to tell girls who are struggling with getting into the mindset of learning engineering um, as she wants to get better at coding and engineering as a whole, but is finds it hard and doesn't um, see anything that's pretty motivating for them. So how she's asking, how did uh, how would she lift herself up and motivate herself to go and pursue um, a career in the STEM field? So um, I, I don't know if I have the ability to kind of create a dialogue to you with this, but um, what is your motivation? I would kind of start thinking about what is your motivation for wanting to go into the STEM field? Are you motivated by the fact that these fields typically have a higher salary associated with them? It's a perfectly valid thing to be motivated by. Are you motivated by looking at this science that has come out of this field? Are you motivated by maybe some external factors such as parental pressure, which I've absolutely seen, um, just other people in the family having that career and you knowing it's a quote unquote safe option. Uh, so really think about and look at your motivation behind why do I want to go into this field first? And then once you have that base motivation and kind of know the reason behind it, there, I believe has to be some sort of, hey, I want to make this choice for myself. Um, again, can be one of those motivations, doesn't matter, but you have to make the choice of, hey, this is something that I want to learn. And you asking that question does seem to motivate that you do. And I would reach out in terms of programs, maybe Girls Who Code. I know there are other ones in terms of um, like virtual meetup groups or even in-person meetup groups, if that's something that is allowed. And just sitting with other people and kind of talking through things together. So. Uh, just to give a personal analogy, I hated coding the first time I saw it. I absolutely did not want anything to do with it. Um, so my first experience with coding was in C. Not C++, <laughs> just C. So there were no functions. There was no built-in things you could use. You had to build it all from scratch. And our final in that class was not done on a computer, it was done on paper. So you had no idea, you had no way of testing your code. And I don't think I wanted to touch code again after that until somebody showed me 
kind of, oh, but if you learn it, then you can do this. So there is some external motivating factor of, oh, you can do really good science, or look, you can solve this problem or work towards this problem that you've always had an interest in. So say, for example, that you have an interest in biology. Well, a lot of data processing in biology now does involve a bunch of sequencing DNA. You need a computer for that. But if that question of, hey, this is biology and I think this is super neat, you don't have to learn coding completely, but you have to learn enough to get that job done. So I don't think it is the end of the world if you're just like, hey, I just need a slow introduction to coding or STEM or whatever it is. And just move forward as you need it. That actually perfectly leads into the next question someone had asked, which was this one's mainly like an opinion based one. And um, feel free if you don't like want to answer it, because I feel like this this question is quite difficult. Um, so they had asked that many argue that computer science is superior, um, and that jobs and have jobs with an adequate salary and cannot be found anywhere else. What do you think of that? And this um, person wants to go into aerospace engineering, but many people say that um, computer science is where the bank is at. So do you really see computer science as like a like a superior major? Or is it like, is it, I feel like I personally think computer science is very tied into a lot of different aspects. But do you think that um, even if you want to like learn how to code, you have to go into um, computer science or maybe like, dip into other majors? So I guess my general answer to that is, no, I don't think computer science is superior. And I have a couple of different reasons for this, but uh, from a academic perspective, um, I know that a lot of the people in my current research group coding is not their skill set, but they are very successful at getting papers published and figuring out and just thinking about science. And they seem to be very successful that way. Um, your question, I believe, was more from the industry perspective. And I think maybe it used to be very stacked in terms of money. But I think with all of the competition and so many people going into it, that computer science is almost kind of what we call at capacity. Um, I don't know if it's there yet, but it is one of those things where, yes, we still do need computer scientists, but we might not need as many as universities that are generating right now. And I think this is in part due to tools such as ChatGPT, which can code for you if given the correct prompt. It can also uh, set up some machine learning stuff for you that you really, you should absolutely check, make sure it's correct. Um, sometimes it just gives you garbage. But I do think a lot more value is added to the critical thinking skills for that and visualizing and communicating 
your data analysis, I think is one of the ones that is still very much needed in industry right now. And I think that is kind of where a lot of the money is. So not quite computer science, um, but maybe more visualization of things. And I don't know if you necessarily need a 100% coding background for that. I actually think it adds value to have a diverse viewpoint. So how do you visualize things from biology? How do you visualize things in material science? How do you put these together in a way that you can present to the public and create new marketing strategies from uh, new commercial products that you can then sell to people, things like that. That's right. I feel like that really answers a lot of questions for a lot of us here as mainly I, I know my um, my parents had a similar belief of, oh, like computer science is like the easy money of like you learn to code, you just code and it's easier than many other like fields. So I feel like that's very like nice to learn that even in the workforce, um, a lot of fields are like very interdisciplinary and it's really, it's really nice. Um, so uh, another question I I had was what like big characteristics do you believe are truly needed to be successful in like in the STEM fields or in nanotechnology? So I've definitely touched on one before and that's curiosity. Um, and I do think this is just because it is a personal motivator as well. But I don't think I could be in the type of environment that academia typically does. It is kind of go, go, go all the time, or a lot of the time, I shouldn't say all the time. But at the end of the day, I come home and I'm so excited to see what I get to learn next. And I've never... Well, I have lost that, but I've always been able to find it again. <laughs> uh, so I, I do think that is a big motivator, at least for me personally. I also think you need to find an outside hobby. So have something that you like to do that is not related to research. That is something that will take your mind off of something else or the job or coding or whatever happens to be and go do that for a little bit have that as an outlet for when you need to take a break and your brain will actually be processing everything in the background and sometimes uh, mine is bouldering um so like kind of baby rock climbing for those of you who aren't familiar with bouldering so sometimes when i'm bouldering the answer to something i've been contemplating will just appear in my head um, so I think that is also a, maybe not a necessary quality, but it does help with reorienting yourself and kind of making a more balanced type of life. And let's see what other skills. Um, you do have to be able to communicate what you're doing. So... I haven't really touched on it too much during this podcast, but 
uh, one of the things that I really do like to try to get involved in is outreach and just communicating science to younger students. That being said, I am still learning how to communicate things myself. It is a active evolving process and sometimes you find certain things work much better than others and you had no idea until somebody like a colleague said, hey, why don't you try this instead? So communication, not only to younger generations, but also just between colleagues and kind of where you want to go with that. Um, so I think, yeah, I think those are probably kind of the main two ones, curiosity and just kind of having an open mind towards communication and communicating your field. Um, I'm sure there are more, but those are the top three that come into mind. Oh, that's really nice. Um, I just remembered, I was gonna ask you about your experiment. Uh, how was it? And could you give a quick rundown for um, everyone here about like what you really did and um, what, what you enjoyed about the your research project or experiment? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that um, some of my time during my PhD was computational and some of it was experimental at national user facilities. And I did a particular type of experiment called inelastic neutron scattering. So uh, the idea is that you fire a neutron at the material that you want to look at, and this will give you some information um, after a lot of data analysis, mind you, about how the material essentially vibrates. Um, and so a lot of my experiments have been going two national user facilities. The most common one I think we used was Oak Ridge National Lab. Um, it's in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And we used a resource called ARCS, which is just the instrument we used. And we would go there and we would sit in this little cabin hutch and we would run scripts to kind of run and choose certain parameters that we wanted for our experiment. And then we would sit and watch it and kind of analyze preliminary data for however long the beam tag was. Typically, this is five to seven days. Uh, I actually just went on a inelastic x-ray. So slightly different than neutrons, uh, kind of a general idea. Have a particle, want your sample to show a specific response to the particle that you're sending at it. And this one was 17 days. And these experiments are 24-7 because um, the particle or the beam of particles does not get tired. Humans do. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't waste resources. So you usually have many people taking shifts and looking at data. Um, one of my favorite things to do with research programs was when I was at a beam time, I would walk them around the synchrotron uh, virtually and they'd actually get to see what it looks like and kind of 
all of the instrumentation behind it, there is so much engineering and building of things that goes into this. This is a giant facility. I think their electricity bills like a million dollars a month. Yeah. That seems like very, like, I don't know if I would enjoy it, but it seems interesting, but I would also probably hate being in the lab for 24-7 and, like, I already have a bad sleep schedule, but it seems really interesting, honestly. Um, thankfully, they don't happen all the time, and <laughs> preserving work-life balance outside of that so you can do that is extremely important. Um, and that is actually one of the things I admired about my PhD advisor is he very much respected work-life balance, um, would actually stop by our doors if we were in the office past six and say, hey, go home, you're done for the day. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, that's another question I was really interested about is how do you like manage your time? Um, I know like high school has due dates, deadlines, um, and it gives us a like sense of like schedule in life. But after after that, like how do you plan out your time, make sure everything gets done and still have like a sane day, a happy day? along with that? So this is something I asked myself a lot at the beginning of grad school. And it is something that you have to be intentional about. Mm -hmm. There is always something that you could be doing in lab um, that doesn't ever go away. But you have to balance essentially your work style and kind of what you want to see in your life outside of that. So I am married, I do have a commitment to a partner and I would like to be able to come home at a reasonable time to spend some of my evenings with them. And we have arranged such that that can happen. Um, there are some times such as when I'm at 17 days experiments when I don't see my partner for many, many days. <laughs> and it sucks, but it is doable. Again, it's a balance of, okay, I just took these 17 days, but it means that I'm going to take maybe Monday and Tuesday and just spend them at home getting other things done that my partners had to do in my absence, things like that. Um, and then in grad school, made sure I did not respond to emails on weekends, made sure that I didn't respond to emails past 7 p.m. in the evening. And I definitely got emails from my advisor initially after that. and. I think it took maybe three to four months and then he realized, oh, I might as well just send this in the morning because Camille's not going to respond until tomorrow morning anyway. Mm -hmm. So really making it intentional and defining your boundaries does have to happen. It does take some effort, but it really does mean I can show up every day after day and still be excited about the work. Yeah, that's really nice. I feel like 
a lot of high school students, especially me, need to know, learn that. Um, I feel like it's like, I, I don't know. It's very common in high school to like not have any boundaries and do like homework at 3 a.m. Um, I am, I am a guilty, I'm guilty of that, honestly. I've been up till 3 a.m. doing homework sometimes. So I think, I think it's really nice your advice on like making sure there are boundaries and um, sticking to them. And I should say that I didn't really, I was not great at this in undergrad. Um, this is a skill I developed in grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, That's really nice. Um, so I do have a couple more like college related questions. Um, so uh, I was really wondering, like, uh, what were your research opportunities like during um, undergrad or, or like grad school? Were they mainly like, were you able to control what you researched or was it like someone telling you and then you just run through that experiment? Mostly the latter. Um, you, and this took me a while to kind of, I think, come to terms with or just accept, but you are not going to be able to learn everything in however much time you have as an undergraduate in between doing classes and research and maybe if you're in a band or in extracurricular sports something like that um, you aren't going to have as much time to just do research if that's something you want to do Mm -hmm. and a good advisor will recognize this and say hey I don't expect you to learn everything. I have been in this field for, you know, often 10 plus years at that point in their life when they're ready to take on undergrads. And I will guide you through this project. Here's something you can work on. Please come and ask me if you have any questions. And I think that's really the key is don't be afraid to ask questions as an undergraduate researcher. So if you don't understand something, you're likely not expected to, but you are expected to learn about it. So just come in with that perspective, I think, for undergraduate research. And I think you'll learn a lot more. I definitely had friends in bio that um, did research in that they were in a lab and their job was to compress spines of mice between two plates at regular intervals. They did end up going to grad school at a great school after that, Uh, but I don't know if they learned an astronomical amount about the field, but they learned about their individual project and what they had to do and how to perform an experiment. And those technical and practical skills are often as important as kind of the having an answer to a question type thing. That's really, um, it seems very interesting, the research aspect. Uh, There's a lot of like layers to it, like not something I know for us in um especially in high school are like chemistry labs last 45 minutes um but you don't really get to like learn you mainly like I feel like in chemistry at least you mainly see it 
happen and then um you just get taught the information and you don't really get to like see the entire process which I think is really nice about like college the next step you go a little bit deeper um so yeah that's really nice I just for the audience I am running out of a little out of questions so if anyone has any um please free, feel free to ask questions in the forum meanwhile I will continue asking the couple I have left uh mainly in terms these are like very like college -y questions I would say um what do you think was your favorite STEM subject in college and like why? Uh, so I think this one might be unexpected, um, but I really enjoyed my particle physics class. Oh. And I think it was because it was such a, well, I also enjoyed partial differential equations, but that's more because the TA was excellent and I feel like I just learned a lot because there was somebody invested in teaching us. In terms of content, it was probably particle physics or quantum field theory. And it was just a way of approaching science that I hadn't ever seen. So trying to explain this topic without going into too much detail. Um, how do I explain it? So atoms are made up of particles inside of them. Those particles are also made up of other particles. And that is the particle that particle physics is interested in. And they have very strange names for these. So I don't know if you've heard of what a quark is. A little bit. <laughs> um, so they have kind of unique names. So there's an up quark, there's a damn quark, there's also a strange quark, there's also a charm quark. Um, so they have very unique names. And a lot of the theory that was behind it was it was particles, so it was still kind of materials-y, but it was also very much tied to astrophysics. And at some point you get so small that you get large. And I have seen this repeatedly as I have kind of advanced in the field in terms of just physics generally. And that a lot of the things that we do as material scientists actually have ties to astronomy and kind of how the world works. Or there are techniques that we share between each other, that kind of thing. Um, and the professor for that class really just wanted to teach us the cool things about it. And I, again, think that the approach of a teacher or just anybody and how they engage with students can really make or break that class. Um, sometimes you don't have a choice. There are definitely reader classes as we call them. I, I don't know if you still call them that. Um, I'm a little bit old now, so. <laughs> no, we still call them reader classes, so. Yeah, um, those still unfortunately exist. Um, 
So once you pass through those, the classes, you have more control over taking them and the people that are teaching them become more invested. And it's usually actually those people that you can find research positions with if you start talking to them. So I don't know many that have been able to start um, research with a kind of general education type course, but the more specialized classes or the upper division classes that you have some choice over, start asking them because they will often have positions that you can fill. Oh, okay. So it's not, it's ma mainly like you have to network a little bit, right? To... Networking is everywhere. You're not ever <laughs> going to get away from it. Yeah, as I've heard from many, many people. Do you have any like tips on networking? Um, surprisingly, I no one understands, but I've, I'm an introvert. So for me, it's like hard to like talk to other people, um, which apparently I don't seem like it. But do you have any ad advice for like those who are like find it difficult to talk to others on um, how to network and like mainly how to venture into such a vast field and like make your make your group, make your um, make friends with your like colleagues and such like. So. I don't know many people in my field that would consider themselves extroverts. There definitely are people that exist. Um, and those people make networking a lot easier for introverts because they will introduce you to people, they will go out and talk to people and kind of bring you along with them. So I was very fortunate in that my first uh, roommate in college, now one of my very good friends to this day, is absolutely an extrovert. <laughs> and she loves getting to know people and talking to people about their interests. And that gets other people talking and then they start asking you. So if you have somebody that is a friend that is an extrovert, start going to things with them kind of watch how the interaction happens and then when you feel ready join in yeah that's um, oh, go ahead. oh i was just gonna say that's like great advice um mainly what i've heard at least from some people i was just like you have to just put yourself in the deep zone and like try not to drown <laughs> so. i do think there is some of that um, but there are also ways to ease yourself into it more. So I was, I was wondering, and, um, since I'm going to be in college next year and I don't want to, uh, just be in my dorm room the entire time, are there like, um, mixers or like, I don't know, um, major by major like parties where you can like get to know your peers or like classmates or were there any at like San Diego? So there were a lot of uh, events hosted by the housing that you live in. Yeah. So depending on what housing you live in, uh, there are a lot of different events, including mixers and 
kind of like outdoor game stuff like that that are hosted by the um, called RAs residential associates and their job is to kind of create a community of people living in these areas and essentially help you network and help you get to know your peers. So that is kind of how you can initially get to know people. And then you likely will find people that have similar goals with you in some of the classes that you'll have to take for general education. And whether it's bonding over doing homework late night or if it's just like, hey, I need a study break, can we go and do this? This is actually how my friend in undergrad and I met. We were really, really annoyed at this coding class that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And we looked at each other, we were sitting next to each other at the computer lab. And we kind of mutually decided like, hey, we need a break, let's get out of here and go do something. And we've been virtually inseparable since. Oh, that's that's nice. That's very. It feels very heartwarming to know that I'm not going to be alone <laughs> suffering through hard classes. So that's really nice. Yeah, you will definitely not be alone. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like that's one of the things that, especially like I face, is like imposter syndrome, and I know many other like girls and like women and non-binary people in uh in the STEM field they also face that so I was wondering if you have ever like felt that like imposter syndrome and like how you've dealt with it and like imposter syndrome meaning um you felt like you didn't fit in somewhere and you like the people around you were like too good or too high of a level that you weren't at have you ever like felt that way I still feel that way <laughs> um and I will tell you a, I think it's a funny story. It may not be a funny story to anybody else, um, but being hired for this new role, um, I did jump fields a lot. So to this day, I kind of am doubtful of my ability to be able to learn some of these things. And I was talking to my now advisor after we had gone through the hiring process and I said something, I can't remember exactly what I said. And my new advisor looked at me and was just like, you doubt yourself too much. We're going to train you out of that. And my first internal thought was I've had however many years now of doubting if I am good enough and you think you're going to be able to train me out of this in a year. So I don't know if it's ever something that goes away, but I think you learn to do things a little bit terrified. Hmm. And you accept the fact that the worst thing people are going to say is no and it's scary when people say no and it's disappointing but then you have an answer and you can start to reevaluate for the next thing that's really yeah it's it's i don't know i feel like 
imposter syndrome is not very it's not talked about a lot um and I'm honestly that's one of my like big questions in life is like when will I be able to feel like I fit in um so it's like it's like it's nice that I'm not I'm not the only one um feeling this way sometimes um so I have some I, I would call them weird questions but they're very like I don't know, in a fun way, questions. Um, one of my questions I had asked some of my other guests was, if your uh, subject was an animal, what animal would it be and why? Oh, I like this one. <laughs> so... I think probably a porcupine. <laughs> and I think this is because it seems very scary and complicated on the outside. But once you find a community within there that's very supportive, you flip the porcupine over, then you really do find a sense of community and people that boost you up and are there to support you when you don't feel confident in yourself or when you are having a really hard day because something didn't work out. And I talked a lot about this in the past month with people and that the community, uh, even in undergraduate research, grad school research, the community is really what makes a huge impact on if you want to continue in a field or not. Mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's very, I like the answer for you fine. Um, I hadn't thought about like engineering in general like that, but I, I see it now. Um, so this is another like weird question. Actually, one of our audience members has asked is that, did you have any like media any like role models that you really like looked up to growing up like it can be like cartoons like personally I was obsessed with Phineas and Ferb growing up and it's like a it's a show about two brothers spending every day of their summer like randomly building things um and crazy inventions so personally that was like one of my like oh I really want to go into engineering because this is so cool uh did you have any of those like growing up so I did not have TV growing up. No. Um, so I didn't have like a specific TV show or anything like that, but I did have books. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them were more, I would say, fantasy books. So I don't think they were necessarily indicative of the field I was going to go in. But I definitely did find some sci-fi books that were amazing. Um, one thing I did do when I was younger is maybe because I didn't have TVs, I would go outside and I would, I'm sure to the absolute annoyance of my mother, bring out all the things in the kitchen cabinets. And I would start mixing them together and see how they reacted and doing things like that. So I don't think it was any surprise when I became a scientist, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I wasted a lot of food ingredients when I was 
younger. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I feel like that's a common thing that stands a test of time of making little like potions outside with dirt and mud. Um, that's, that's really nice. Do you have any book recommendations that are sci-fi? Um, personally, I'm really interested in sci-fi. <laughs> Uh, have you read any of Isaac Asimov's books? Ooh, I have not. Uh, so I didn't fall in love with the iRobot series, but he has some very unique ones that I, I can't give too much away, but uh, some that really play with like memory and gender roles. Oh. Um, so, and kind of unknown phenomena and how if we had been on maybe a different planet, how some phenomena might be much more unique. So one of his books, I don't think this is giving too much away, um, is about a planet that has three suns. So it's always daytime. Um, and I think that one's called Nightfall. Oh, I think I've heard of that one. Uh, so that I did enjoy list. that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've practically run out of questions. Um, if anyone in the audience would like to ask a question, now's your time. Uh, I'll start asking my like go-to closing question of, um, do you have any other pieces of advice um, for those seeking to pursue a career in like nanotechnology and materials engineering and such? Um, aside from the very stereotypical, learn as much you, as you can about something you're interested in. Um, don't lose yourself in the process of trying to do something you think you need to do. Um, I have found that it's never been helpful for me to not be authentic to who I am and I've certainly tried <laughs> um, so becoming becoming your, your own unique person is a valuable skill in its health and don't underestimate that that's, you will that's have really experience nice. oh, sorry mm -hmm. uh, you will have experiences that nobody else around you has had and you can bring that diversity to a team so don't be afraid to be yourself that's a wonderful way um to wrap up this podcast uh i personally don't have any other questions to ask um and i don't think our audience has either so i will once again thank you for coming and telling us more about your journey. It was very insightful and I feel like it's a very reassuring the advice you gave. Um, yeah, I hope some of it helps everybody in their future as they move forward. And I hope you find something that you find joy in doing. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who joined today. I hope you have, everyone learned something and that's another episode of From Scratch. I hope to see y'all in the future.